The Right Hook Podcast. Make business sense on the road with the Mitsubishi Outlander Business, the two-seater SUV with low BIK, 200 euro VRT and a five-year warranty. MitsubishiMotors.ie It's Monday. It's the right hook, and it's news talk. George Hook here, and uh, I've got some of the things that really got me going today on today's program. The weekend, um, the weekend, what did I do? Absolutely nothing. It was a great weekend. In fact, although I went out for a curry uh, to my favourite Indian restaurant in Dorky, Jaipur, on Sunday night, and apparently because I hadn't washed or shaved or changed my shirt for the entire weekend, it uh, the it uh, I apparently was uh, more pungent than the curry, according to Ingrid. But other than that, doing the shopping at Super Value, I found some great new ginger beer, which I'm looking forward to. Uh, what else did I do? Not a lot. I must have. What's I watch? Oh, I watched. Oh, yeah. I had an orgy of um, cowboy movies. Sorry. Sorry about the orgy. Yeah, no. The orgy of cowboy movies. Audie Murphy, 40 Guns to Apache Pass. The much underrated Fred McMurray. Most of you remember him in Disney. He was very good in a thing called The Moonlighter with the wonderful Barbara Stanwyck. Now, I was also reading a book about what Philip Malloy calls a gossip, but it's great gossip. And Barbara Stanwyck seemed to be on every second page. Quite lady was our Barbara, apparently. And if the book's been uh, believed, she had a very interesting uh, life outside the movies. Uh, So I read the book. That's about it, really. And then, of course, the main reason was, of course, I didn't want to go into town because, of course, when you think it was going to be 25,000 people, 10,000 motor cars, uh, all at uh, Marion Square. Connor Pope, of course, was, was terrified. He was saying, oh, it'll be a huge crowd. And the answer is nobody turned up. Well, they did, a few. About about a hundred, about a hundred people turned up out of the twenty thousand, you know, and it just goes to prove a lot of this insurance stuff is absolutely bolder. That, I mean, I asked Connor Pope. I said, well, "Why has my insurance gone up? Why has my son's insurance gone up? Or, uh, and or Ingrid's insurance gone up?" And the answer is because I actually believe that insurance has not gone up for a ton of people. And it's the usual story. The ordinary people who are not going out and saying, well, my insurance didn't go up, they are being drowned out by the cacophony of noise from the protesters. And none of them were in Marion Square. But imagine how many people stayed away from that area because they thought there was going to be a protest. I'll tell you. Well... Happy July the 4th. It's Independence Day for uh, 40 million people of Irish extraction over in the United States. Uh, What are your favorite things about America? Well, mine, of course, are crystal clear. The coffee, where they still have it in in, uh, glass jugs, and and it tastes like coffee. And you can have as many cups as you like, and they don't charge you for every cup. 
Uh, 50% of the population I really like. I really like the female population of Americans. Not You, you can take it or leave it, the male population. Um, what else? I love America. Uh, they're essentially like they, when they say, come and see me sometime, they actually mean it. I, I've often said, somebody come and see me sometime, and then when they turn up at my door, I'm absolutely terrified. Uh, so, uh, the, uh, oh, Paul McQuaid just caught my eye there. He sent me a text. He was cycling, and uh, a taxi literally drove through a red light and hit me, were it not for my spectacular bike handling skills, could uh, have been worse. Taxis, please, quit flying through orange and red lights. Well, now, Paul, there's a slight question mark here. If he flew through an orange light heading east to west, what were you head doing heading through north to south? Uh, jump in the lights, uh, Paul, I, and I don't know, you might like to get back to me, jump in the lights is as big a sin as going through them. And the text number, of course, is 53106. Off you go and use it. And I'm on Twitter, at G-Yuk. Now, um, Farage has stepped down. Uh, Nigel Farage, the head of UKIP, has stepped down saying, uh, I have done my bit. Boris has stepped down. You know, having led uh, the British people maybe over a cliff, over an economic cliff, these guys uh, are all um, walking off the bench. I, the reason I hesitated there was I, when I, these texts sometimes confuse this old age pensioner. And uh, George in London said to me, George, are you enjoying Wimbledon? I must say, I haven't seen a ball being hit. Although I absolutely object to women playing tennis in their underwear. And all these, it was a great article on the, the paper on Sunday. Why do women tennis players expect to be taken seriously uh, when uh, they're playing their underwear? And then if you look at the Sunday Independent, the headline on the Sunday Independent was that a huge number of us are now totally unhappy about the future and worried about it. There was a picture of some woman in a red dress who I didn't know who she was, so I didn't bother, and a picture of Brian O'Driscoll and Amy Huberman uh, at Wimbledon. The world's coming to an end, and our newspapers have pictures of uh, just celebs. In fact, Ms. Huberman uh, was two pictures on uh, the thing. Everybody going out of their mind because um, they were sitting in the royal box next to David Beckham. I mean, are we serious about doing the news or are we not? And are we serious about gender balance or simply just putting pictures of women because they're attractive on our newspapers and on our tennis court? And uh, so Oxford University, not satisfied with our knocking down buildings that were paid for by guys that they don't like. They're not going to replace paintings of male alumni with those of women, LGBT, 
and ethnic minorities as part of a diversity measure. I mean, to be honest, does it really matter uh, if there was a guy in a dress at Oxford in 1926 or whatever? I mean, does anybody really uh, seriously uh, take this stuff? And I don't. And... uh, Sean Wexford says, what I love about the USA is that America keeps the world safe uh, and the great uh, JFK. I think as time goes by, the great JFK, uh, the legend really takes a bit of a hit, uh, Sean. And I appreciate he's a proud son or grandson of Wexford, but I don't think uh, it's that important. George, I got to show my 13-year-old one of the greatest Westerns ever. Shane, greed. I was actually named after the wee actor that played Joey. Come back, Shane. We both enjoyed it thoroughly, said Brandon. Well, the actor the actor who played Joey in Shane and, and the... the um, the picture closes with Shane, played by Alan Ladd, riding away from the farm, and the little boy says, come back, Shane. It's it's a fabulous piece of movie making. And he was played by an actor called Brandon de Vilda. And uh, my texter was named after him. You're talking through your backside on insurance, car insurance. Uh, Vincent in Dublin 16 says, my insurance has more than doubled this year for no apparent reason. Well, why weren't you in Marion Square, Vincent? Uh, you know, you had a chance to protest. And where were you in Marion Square? 15 years, Owen says. No full license, no points. Same insurance company, full no claims. Insurance risen by 30% this year. Car insurance uh, down a hundred, says J.M., right? Insurance gone from a low of 150 a few years ago to my current quote of 456. Female, late 50s, full no claims, bonus, perfect driving record. My old Fiat Punto, which I have from you, 2000, a bit shocked. I'm staggered you're getting insurance for 456 Madam, you're absolutely costing the insurance company money. I mean, that's a steal to think you can get insurance at 456 Or, indeed, that you got it a few years ago for 150 I wonder, can you remember, if you don't mind me saying so, but, like, I was paying 150 for my car, uh, Donkeys years ago. The uh, so Keith is coming home with his missus, and the quotes for car insurance have been three thousand euro each or thereabouts. It's bad enough we had to leave the country, but when we try to return, we just get hit with yet another outrageous bill. Well, let's try and analyse that. You're coming back from Britain. They know nothing about you. You're getting your first ever insurance policy as far as they're concerned. I'm only saying, Keith, maybe that's why. Uh, What Boris and Farage have done to the British people is the equivalent of Moses leading the Jews into slavery and then legging it. (laughs) Oh, that's super. I really like that, TJ. And then, so, the cacophony of complaints on insurance are liars because you and Ingrid have not had an increase in insurance. I didn't say they were liars. 
if you look there at half a dozen quotes, one went down, two went up, and one went up from a staggeringly low premium, and one is for people out taking out their first insurance. Uh, what's the name of the book on Hollywood gossip that you're reading? You mentioned on Friday as well. I'm dying to know uh, what it is. Is it Full Service by Scotty Bowers? If not, you really like the juicy gossip, says John. No, it's by a fella called Royale, John. Um, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, look into it and get somebody from the show to contact you with the full name. I downloaded it on Kindle. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie All right, uh, I'm joined in the studio now by the Finnegale TD for Dublin Northwest, Noel Rock. He is a member of the Dole Public Accounts Committee. Um, Welcome to the programme, Deputy Rock. Um, There are two things I really want to talk to you about. Um, Apart from the appalling cave-in by Taoiseach on the question of the Independent Alliance, Mm. why didn't he sack them? Would you have sacked them if you were Taoiseach? Uh, <laughs> I don't ask myself what I'd do if I was Taoiseach if I woke up in the morning you know the Taoiseach is the Taoiseach and he's made his decision on this matter I suppose for a lot of people I mean you, you hear this talk of you know votes of conscience and what have you and I mean after we go through the process which we promised in our manifesto we promised that we'd go through a, a citizens convention if you like to debate yeah. the issue fully and then after that we would allow our party to have a vote of conscience as far as I'm aware that's the process that's how we're going to work and you know there's no way we're going to deviate from the manifesto we put before the people, so yeah, okay, but but all right, I I, I just think it's appalling that that people can do what they like and still say they're in government. But I have you here for a different reason. Literally within hours, we have a situation that. We don't know what's in it, but we discover a lockup owned by uh, the previous, chief, the former chief executive for console, Paul Kelly. Uh, but the figures and the numbers are staggering. Uh, how did this charity continue to do this for so long? I mean, it really is incredible for people listening at home to hear these kind of astronomical sums being mentioned and to hear the kind of line items, you know, like credit cards and cars and foreign holidays and this and that being mentioned. People do find it hard to believe that there isn't a proper level of oversight and scrutiny. And I suppose my role on the Public Accounts Committee and our role is to try and get to the bottom of this, first of all, to have the HSE and before us to see that public money is being used in the best way possible, which clearly in this case, it was not. However, we do need to ensure that there's a continued provision of services there as well, because clearly in the case console, they are providing a service. Whatever about these rogue actors within the organisation, it's clear that the charity itself is providing a good well, and worthwhile if purpose. if this charity can, uh, has what looks like uh, initially, because the 2015 audit hasn't been completed, the lockup hasn't been opened, but, but it, at the moment we're looking at half a million, mm-hmm. right? And maybe more. Now, if, and it's reasonable to assume 2015 will follow the pattern of 2014 and so on. But even let's stick with a half a million that we know about. How much services were they producing if 
half a million of the revenue was, was, was going somewhere else. Well, I mean, based on the, the amount the HSE provides in 2015, by way of example, to stick with that year, right. the HSE would have given them directly approximately, as far as I can see, €650,000. Then there would obviously be public donations on top of that, and you presume some kind of recurring revenue streams. That so we could be talking about a million. Yeah, I, I well, like, I mean, it's not for me All to All right, but to round figures, like, yeah. I mean, we could be... To, but even, let if they never raised another penny anyway, Mm-hmm. They got six hundred and fifty thousand from the HSE. Now, what's to stop me next year setting up the George Hook support, whatever I decide to support, and I say, to AG, hello, lads, can I have six hundred and fifty thousand? Well, this is why it was uncovered by the HSE. Of course, the HSE initiated this internal audit. That's why it's come to light in this case. And you know, that's good practice, I suppose. I mean, it, it they, com- let's be honest, they initiated it. I suspect, but somebody rang them up. Yeah, it would seem to be the case that a whistleblower certainly tipped them off. But we need to continue these kinds of internal audits happening, first of all. And second of all, I suppose, we need to ensure the charity regulatory authority, which is a relatively new construction. I'm not sure people realise that actually it didn't exist. We didn't actually have a charities regulator really before 2014 when this was established. That needs to have the teeth to be able to self-initiate audits and enforce their findings okay. as well, which uh, will from September. You're a member of the, politi- uh, of the Public Accounts Committee. I, interestingly, we did not have a charities regulator on, until 2014, right? Just a matter of interest, have you any idea how long Charity com- Charities Commission in the United Kingdom has been around? Probably longer than you've lived <laughs> on this planet, right? <laughs> so therefore, the British have always had you know, the idea that you had to regulate charities. It we it, in a blinding flash of, of of insight, we appeared to have found out in twenty fourteen that we were spending millions on charities and maybe we should check where it was going. Absolutely, George. I mean, you know, I'm not going to be held accountable for the sins no, of the no, past no, to a certain not extent. I'm not trying but, to no, you're, you're I'm trying to puzzle right. it out. Absolutely you're completely right. We were far too slow in terms of getting to the party in terms of you know, managing to believe this idea that sometimes charities can be run irresponsibly or ineffectively or can be spending money incorrectly and it's quite clear there's a very repetitive pattern here whereby there are a number of rogue agents within charities often the charities are doing good work but there are people within those charities that are not doing good work and are working against the best interest of the charity you see isn't there a real worry here right that somebody like you in an excess of political zeal on the public accounts committee says you know we must cap the salaries of chief executives at charities mm. and you cap them at say for argument's sake 60,000 you pat yourself on the back now and you go away and say job done mm. but now you don't get very good chief executives because you're paying bad money. You pay somebody a worthwhile salary and then they do a good job for you. Yeah. No? I mean you're you're right, George. You're you're kinda of, you're looking further down the road here in terms of what kind of populist angles could be come up with by the public accounts committee to yeah. grab a cheap headline next week when we have the HSE in or we have the charity regulator in. And and you're right, that's a real fear. But what I'd say to people, you know, listening at home is that, you know, a good chief executive, a good chief executive of a charity that isn't skimming off money on the side is often worth a good salary because they actually bring in contributions far in excess of their own salary purely because they inspire that kind of confidence within the organisation. But, you know, isn't it hard to believe the HSE is given somebody 650,000 and they do not appear, it's not about even an audit, wouldn't 
if there was any kind of study of what was going on here, wouldn't they have noticed Chief Executive driving up in his 75,000 motor car and his wife driving up in another 75,000 motor car? Wouldn't they notice that kind of stuff? Yeah, I presume they didn't drive to the same meetings at the same time together because, I mean, it'd be as plain as day that, you know, there would have been a huge element of uh, of cream skimming there taking place. But uh, you're right, it does beg the question, you know, why did it take this amount of time to come to light? That's one of the questions that I intend to be asking of the HSE at the public. How long did it take and who gave him the money and what questions he asked? That's what you have to do. I'm not telling you how to do your job. Now, my guest, by the way, uh, is Deputy No Rock, the Fine Gael TD for Dublin Northwest, who is on the public accounts committee. The problem... In Ireland, is not only are people unaccountable, but they are also anonymous. Mm-hmm. So we don't know who gave him the money. We don't know who was responsible for checking on what was going on. Yeah, and I mean, you know... I mean, did they not ask a question when Noel Smith, his charge emerged in terms of, of, of the call centre, for instance, and, and he put up something in the cost of 500000 and then these other guys disappeared again. Did nobody say, well, why has this happened? It seems to me there were a lot of signals which they ignored. Yeah, and it seems the lessons learned in this case, certainly, were often unlearned or forgotten due to, I don't know, institutional fatigue, perhaps, or people just not keeping their eye on the ball, as you or I might say, George. Because it does seem there were a lot of flags for a number of years now. Going back, you know, uh, uh, my my colleague, obviously, Mairead McGuinness within Fine Gael had exposed this individual 26 years ago for wrongdoing before. And it seems, frankly, incredible to people like you and I looking at it now that he managed to get right back to the top of a charitable organisation in a position of trust, in a political position of responsibility and influence and could again, once again, get get his hands on money with very little oversight. Now, the other thing that's happened is apparently at St. John of God's where uh, two million was paid out to 14 senior managers. Now, that would appear to be over a two-year period. Isn't that right? That's right, yeah. Okay. Um, so, two million is a very emotive kind of number, but when you divide it by two, it's one million, and you divide one million by 14, the number's are different, but mm. it's not as motive, if you like. But isn't this a real example of what I talked about earlier? You start setting caps for executives, then presumably John, the problem for John of Gods was they had difficulty either recruiting or holding managers, no? Yeah, well they may have had difficulty doing it but I don't think it's fair that you know, they sign a document, a service level agreement with the HSE in this case saying yes, we abide by the public sector pay rules and then kind of So what did they do? Crossing their fingers behind their back. What did they do? Well in effect they, uh, they broke the pay cap is what they've done here. Did they? Well we can see that quite clearly I think. Can we? I think we certainly Explain, please. I, I mean, for me, I don't know. Well, it seems though um, the Mail, the uh, Daily Mail, Mail on Sunday newspaper has revealed that these payments were perhaps in addition to their regular agreed salary and that therefore that would put them far above the public sector pay scale. So I think that's another job for the Public Accounts Committee to be looking at how public money is being used. Okay. Is taxpayers' money being Why used Why are we surprised about John O'God's? Didn't other hospitals in Ireland take the cash from the car park and, and start giving it to chief executives? Is that right? Right? That's right, yeah, once once upon a time, not so long ago. So um, why are we, like, you're talking about Mairead McGuinness 26 years ago. Mm. We've got we've got tons of examples of this and no lessons ever get learned. I mean, 
If you're going to create standards and you're going to try and impose standards, then I think we need to be strict in our implementation of those yes. standards. And that's where we often fall down. You know, you and I and, and politicians next week will theorise about what new caps or, or, or new things should be implemented. But actually, if we're not enforcing the existing yeah. ones, it all adds up to nout, really. So what we need to do is draw a clear line in the sand here. We need to empower the charity regulator with the kind of powers that it needs to initiate its own investigations and act on those findings instead of quite simply allowing it to wait until an internal HSE audit is needed because that simply isn't good enough. But like just before you go, a great charity called Gold. Like when Gold started all those years ago, tons of people got involved because John O'Shea, the chief executive, worked for nothing. I always thought it was a retrograde step when the charity eventually decided to pay John because they were saying some fairy works for nothing. But what it created amongst the givers was, you know, well he's not taking a dime here. His money is actually going to the starving millions and what has happened with so much of charity work is if we give a euro we don't know what percentage of the euro goes to the place it's supposed to be going. This is correct. And I mean, if we were to use the theoretical George Hook, uh, you know, society, um, yeah. you know, whatever we'll call it, the George Hook yeah. charity example, you know, if you were transparent in your accounts and you said, I'm a good chief executive, yes, I take one cent out of every euro donated. However, you know, that's my salary. And actually, I manage yeah. to drum up advocacy and I do a great job for the charity. I think people would accept that. But it's this kind of cloak and dar- dagger, kind of smoke and mirrors kind of accounting tricks that people don't like. All right. That was uh, the Finnegan TD for Dublin Northwest, No Rock. Who were the auditors? Well, we're all madly eager to find out who the auditors were because we want them to do our accounts, of course. And we wish the public accounts well. and uh, uh, wish them well in terms of uh, finding out what happened. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Well, um, you know, big words are no problem for my next guest, Senator Van, the bad chick. She'd been uh, read Professor Law at Trinity College Dublin. Uh, Senator Badchick, welcome to the programme. Thank you, George. Now, the Independent Alliance, despite being members of cabinet and government, are going to break with the cabinet and the government and vote for Mick Wallace's abortion bill. One, uh, should has it that any value? Two, the Attorney General has said it is uh, unconstitutional. Is it? And three, most people um, who are experts, like masters of various paternity hospitals and so on, think it'll make absolutely no difference. Is that true or false, all that? Well, uh, that's a lot of questions in one uh, bundle, George. But just, I suppose, to start by saying that Mick Wallace's bill is a very um, specific bill. It isn't, in fact, dealing with abortion generally. It's dealing specifically with terminations of pregnancy for fatal fetal abnormalities. And I suppose your, your first question is, you know, what's the purpose of it? Um, well, the bill is huge. The bill addresses a hugely important principle. I think all of us have been very moved by the really tragic and poignant stories of the very brave individuals and couples in the group Termination for Medical Reasons who've all spoken publicly, people like Amanda Mellet, who took a case to the European, the sorry, the United Nations Human Rights Committee. Amanda Mellet and others have spoken about their tragedy in finding that their the pregnancy they were carrying uh, had been diagnosed as having fatal fetal abnormality. In other words, that the baby would not be born alive or would, or would not survive long after birth. And in those circumstances, currently under our law, 
women have no choice but to proceed with the pregnancy if they are staying here. In other words, there's no provision in law for doctors to terminate All the pregnancy. Right. Oh, but we know that, Senator Magic, with respect, so, yeah, so, is so, Wallace's sorry, bill unconstitutional? The first point is that, in, in principle, I believe, and indeed, you know, the Labour Party, as Alan Kelly made clear in the door last week, Labour strongly believes that women and couples in that position should indeed be able to terminate their pregnancy in our law. The difficulty is, under our constitution, because of the Eighth Amendment introduced in 1983, uh, the <coughs> right to life of the unborn is given equal protection with that of the woman. And the Attorney General has apparently advised on this bill and previously on a, the identical bill Claire Daly introduced last year that this bill is unconstitutional because it it, um, it doesn't define uh, unborn as being... A, uh, but is it uh, unconstitutional uh, or not? I mean, you're the Reed Professor yeah. of Law at Trinity College Dublin. Yeah, in my view, George, simply is, is yes. In its current form, it is unconstitutional. It doesn't give... Because of the way the Constitution is drafted, right. and I am somebody who's campaigned all my adult life for abolition and repeal of the Eighth Amendment. Oh, no. All right, so it's a waste okay, of time. Given the Eighth Amendment's in place, yes, currently, I believe the bill, as currently drafted, is unconstitutional because it doesn't... It doesn't say, I think Simon Harris, the minister, put it very, the Minister for Health, um, pretty much gave the advice he'd been given by the Attorney General. He said it's clear an unborn child has capacity to be born alive. So why are these years. three people wasting our time? Because they are I members think, of the government. Oh, sorry, the Independent Alliance. But yeah. first I just thought, wanted to say, I think Mick Wallace and Claire Daly are absolutely right to continue to press the matter. And indeed, a number of us in Labour in 2012 put a letter to then Minister James Riley, the Minister of Health then, arguing that the government should address legislation for fatal fetal abnormalities that it could be done within the terms of the constitution, albeit that the, it would have to be drafted in a much more restrictive manner and could only apply to the uh, very, uh, very Senator, Senator Badgick, yes. it's a good job you're not on Panorama because your man <laughs> had never let you get away with this meanderings. I mean, there are three independent TDs who are part of the government, who are who have established a, 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 something to, to take the eight Amendment further with a citizens' uh, uh, advice committee or whatever the hell they are, but nevertheless, we have an unconstitutional b uh, a bill before the doll. Otherwise, why bother having an attorney general? Why not just do without an attorney general and have Mick Wallace give us legal advice? So why, like, why are they wasting our time? They're just showboating. Uh, for this, for, and and that's all it is. Like there's conscience. I never heard such claptrap in my life. I've conscience if Mick, if if Michael Noonan wants to raise income tax, every vote is a vote of conscience. Well, George, I'm, you may be surprised to hear I agree with you on that. I think every vote is a vote of conscience. That's quite right. And I think there is an element of posturing in the in three members of the Independent Alliance. They are in government. I do believe. As government ministers, they should consider themselves bound by the Attorney General's advice. So I do agree with you. I think this position, there is one issue on which I think, you know, they pointed out. They did vote for this bill in a pre pretty much the same, it was in fact the same bill. I've looked at the most Claire Daly's bills and introduced after when they were in opposition. So I can see they're in some difficulty. Were they government when they voted for it? No, that's my point. Before Last year, before this government was formed, and I think that's been their central position, is that they're now faced with the same bill and, uh, and and that's why they're raising this issue. But I do agree with you. The posturing is, if you're in government, you are signed up to the Attorney General's legal advice. It's very difficult to go against that if you're a cabinet minister.
Well, I I mean, Finian McGrath has a very high opinion of the Attorney General because Finian McGrath asked the Attorney General should he pay his water charges. So I'm not sure why (laughs) Finian McGrath has suddenly a low opinion of the Attorney General's advice when he was happy to take it on the issue of water charges. Well, precisely. I think uh, class speaks for itself, really, you know. No, I think, you know, as cabinet ministers, that's, that's the deal. You start, They sign up to that. And I think there is, as I say, some posturing about this. But I do see that, you know, it is the same bill. They did vote for it previously. That's but Andy Kenny is, is now going to let them vote. So I like, saw that. But that's, and I think, it, so that's yeah. complete chicken politics. Well, he was clear. You know, there was clearly a face-off, and then Kenny backed down on it. The Taoiseach backed down. I do suspect he may have recognised that this posed a very particular difficulty because they had voted for the same bill in opposition, and we're now being told to vote against the government ministers. You know, and I think clearly the Taoiseach wanted to avert some sort of major crisis in the government. But it does. But, it but your party, well, your party, well. your party might have doubled the number of seats in Dáil if it went off and postured on a whole pile of things when it was in government. A lot of things are found distinctly unpopular, but it was in government. Yeah, I think that's probably a fair point. I think the context was somewhat different in the sense that in 2011, when Labour went into government, there was obviously a very different and much more difficult economic context whereby we were in the Troika programme and so on. So I think, you know, the stability of the government was a much more pressing objective. Now, clearly, this does not bode well for the stability of this government. And now, you know, we're still facing a very difficult political and economic time after Brexit. So I would agree with you that I think, you know, the the independent alliance, this may be the the one shot at this, they can't really be seen to do this again, I think, or that really is very problematic for the government. All right. Thank you so much for joining me, Senator Van Batchek. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie I'm joined now by the managing partner at Price Waterhouse Coopers, at PwC to you and me, um, Fergal O'Rourke. Fergal, welcome to the programme. Hi, George. Well, the news it gets worse and worse. The US Chancellor, George Orb Osborne, has pledged to cut corporation tax to 15% or maybe less. Are you worried? Well, as I think one of your old heroes, Lord, Lord Palmerston, would have said... Um, you know, Britain has no uh, eternal allies and no perpetual enemies. Our interests are eternal and perpetual, and those interests, it's our duty to follow. This is a British play. Uh, George Osborne is now looking to shore up, I suppose, the attractiveness of Britain. It's not particularly surprising, I, I would have said on your show about two years ago when they were talking about cutting the rate, that I could see them coming down to 15%. But the timing is designed to counteract, I suppose, the negative sentiment in the marketplace about Britain exiting Europe. Should we be worried? A little. Um, I think uh, this, if all other things had been equal and Britain were, was staying within the European Union and they said they were cutting the rate to 15, I'd be quite worried. Um, this is designed to counteract the negative implications that may come from them leaving. So I'd say we need to keep calm, we need to monitor it, but I wouldn't expect the Minister for Finance or the Department to come to any knee-jerk reaction following this just yet. Let's okay, all right. Um, Fergal, I have to say the word knee-jerk reaction can hardly be applied to this government who are very slow to do anything. Um, but are you not a little bit worried that the answer to everything is it'll be okay on 
the night, don't worry about it. I mean, Michael Noonan, that's effectively what Michael Noonan has said about everything. It'll be okay, don't worry about it. Yeah, I mean, you have to counter that against, though, George. We actually have a very good tax system, and it's not all about the tax. I think, you know, we had uh, the the American Chamber of Commerce had a big 4th of July lunch there on Friday a bit early. And, you know, talking to executives from the various U.S. multinationals here, yes, they will mention the tax, but they'll mention a hell of a lot of other things that that have worked well for them in Ireland. So we have a good tax system. Uh, a, a competitor, a major competitor, are now trying to steal a march. But, I, I, you know, one thing Ireland has gained from for the last 20 years is stability. We have a 12.5% rate. It's 20th anniversary is later this year when Rory Quinn announced it. Uh, and what US companies love is, even in the fire of the Troika, when Germany and France were at us to raise our rate, we stood firm and held it at 125 and that stability, that sense of Ireland does what it says it'll do, is really strong in investment communities when they're looking for where they, they put their investment. So, again, I just, you know, you're right, you can't leave it to it'll be all right in the night. We need some scenario planning. But if Michael Noonan was on this program, now, I'd be saying, Minister, leave it at 12 and a half, reaffirm your commitment to it, and let's just see how it plays out. Because I think there's a lot of negative sentiment, certainly talking to some U.S. companies last week about Britain leaving you know, nobody really knows how it's going to turn out other than the fact that it'd be bad news. And I think this is this is their knee-jerk reaction, I think, in, in part, to sort of try and shore up that negativity. Oh, um, oh okay, though. But um, the, the real concern is that, though. I mean, it might be shoring up negativity, but it is true, isn't it, that multinationals like are not like people. They, they don't have a grow for the old homestead. They will go wherever they can get the best deal. Yes, and, and where they have the best experience. And I think, you know, again, talking to US multinationals here, they would all say Ireland has worked well for their companies. Uh, they have had good a good experience here, whether it's the workforce, the tax regime, the way of doing business. So, again, we have a really long track record and US companies don't forget that. So, yes, UK will be more attractive. Uh, will they want to be outside the EU? No, but they'll probably want operations in the UK as well. So do do I foresee a, a big jump to the UK as a result of this announcement? Absolutely not. It just adds another ingredient into a melting pot, the output of which we're not going to see for another anywhere from 6 to 18 months. Yeah, it's interesting today... Uh, I'm going to be talking about the midterm uh, economic figures, which are pretty good. Um, but there is no doubt now that um, the, the 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 sort of idea that every six months we're going to get startling economic figures, we're heading towards some kind of slowdown, aren't we? Yes, I mean. So what would you do to to fix it all? Well, the slowdown will be a function. What's happening now, and again, talking to a lot of domestic and foreign direct investment executives in, in the last week, they're pressing pause on their activities, their investment activities. So whether they're expanding or buying new companies or investing in capital assets, what they're saying now is, let's just press the pause button for six months and see how it'll play out. When that happens, economic activity slows down. When that happens, confidence slows down. When confidence slows down, tax receipts slow down. So I think we're entering for the immediate future into a slight slowdown of activity. 
as well as those companies who uh, just in the last half hour was meeting with a senior executive from a company where most of their income is denominated in sterling. They're hedged for the next uh, six or eight months, so they've covered it. But next January, he's saying their income is going to drop significantly. So there's a lot of uncertainty out there. And, uh, you know, I, I think what we're going to see is hopefully some picture of what the post British exit EU is going to look like. But there's no doubt there's uncertainty. And where there's uncertainty, people just don't spend as much and there's not as much economic activity. And it looks like at this stage that is unavoidable. That's a pretty depressing. I didn't bring you on to kind of depress me, but but well, I mean, I, I can give you some good news at the same point. In that you know, it, it you know, and I know David McWilliams. Well, David was was on at the weekend saying it's all good news for it. It's not net net. I believe it's bad news. But there are areas, you know, the financial services sector in particular. There's been a lot of contact over the last two weeks now from companies looking to make sure they're going to still be within the European Union area. We will be more attractive to foreign direct investment because the only naturally English-speaking country within the EU once Britain leaves. So we are going to gain in certain areas, but right across Europe and in Britain, there will be a slowdown. We're going to feel it most because of our relatively unique uh, trading but uh, but uh, yeah all right but uh, there was a big story last week which was morgan stanley were going to shift two or three thousand staff over here in order to stay in the eu but but don't these like the banks who morgan stanley italy and morgan stanley like morgan stanley work in whatever country they're actually sort of trading in don't they well yeah i think that story was then subsequently rubbished by the morgan stanley themselves saying it, it wasn't true but when they look to move from from uh, london if if those financial institutions want to stay within the have operations within the eu realistically frankfurt paris and dublin are going to be top of the list you know even in terms of access of qualified people quite aside from tax and the regulatory environment so we'll be competing with frank frankfurt and paris rather than rome and milan or madrid uh, for that sort of uh, investment opportunity but do you you mentioned financial services you think banks or hedge funds or whatever uh, could all head across the irish sea then I think there's a possibility they're not going to abandon the UK, but to the extent they have businesses that serve Europe and they want to stay within the single market, if it plays out as it looks like it's going to play out, they will have to move those activities to somewhere within the EU. And, you know, it's a short, relatively short move from from London to Dublin. There's a common law uh, operation in both jurisdictions. The language is the same. You know, Ireland would have benefits going for it. It's not as big as Frankfurt uh, or, or, or Paris, but it still would have a lot going for it. And to the extent that... You know, when you and I were speaking last week after this, you know, we, we uh, talked about a, a number of thousands of jobs that could move. Ireland is going to be in play for some of those jobs. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Uh, yeah, but, but I mean, at the same time, it's niche stuff. You know, it's only fancy dandy accountants like you and solicitors and all this are going to get jobs. Uh, uh, you know... Paddy Murphy, you went over there on a relatively mon- mundane job, but well paid. Those jobs are not going to be switching over here. Fancy dancing might be a bit much if you've seen me running last week. <laughs> but, um, but no, I mean, it, it is. And that's why I'm saying there will be niche areas where yeah. Ireland will benefit. But net net, you know, it's bad for business, it's bad for Ireland, it's bad for the UK, and it's bad for Europe. And, right, you know, so the job is to try and mitigate as much of that as possible. And indeed, you know, 
represent Britain in the negotiations with Europe in, in, in trying to get a solution that's least damaging to trade as we can. I must say a future Ireland uh, absolutely flooded with accountants and investment bankers is more than body and soul can take. There's a collective noun missing there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me. Dad is the managing partner at uh, Price Waterhouse Coopers, uh, Fergal O'Rourke.